Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. And I'd love you to turn, please, in your Bible or uh, use whatever device you use to get your Bible to Romans chapter 5, uh, the second half. That's where we're going to spend our, our time together today. I just want to be right up front this morning and say to you that uh, Romans chapter 5, the second half, it's thick. It's intense. It's, it's very, very thought-provoking. And so I just want everyone to, to grip and get ready because we're going to go through this. It's one of the most exciting, in my opinion, uh, passages in all of Scripture. But it's going to take all of us to pay close attention to what Paul was trying to teach Christians then and what he's trying to teach us now. As Wayne brilliantly prayed that the same spirit that inspired the text would now speak to us. Uh, the second half of Romans chapter 5, like I just shared, is one of the greatest theological sections actually from Genesis to Revelation. In 10 verses, Paul summarizes chapter 1 through 5, and in one broad sweep, he's about to walk all of us through the fallenness of humanity and the opportunity for freedom and rescue through God's provision of Jesus, if, of course, we want it. As one reflected, they said the passage begins with the abyss of our ruin, then ascents to our rescue, and then to the pinnacle of God and our reign. But our story does not begin with us today. The story does not begin even with Jesus today. The story begins somewhere else. Back, back, back at the beginning of time in a place we know as Eden, paradise, where Adam, Eve, God, animals, creation itself lived in peace. There was harmony, relationship. It was the way it was supposed to be. Truly, it was the Hebraic view of shalom. Work, recreation, sex, life, heaven, earth, the seen, the unseen, all united properly at one point. It was the Lord's prayer actually in action before it was lost. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This utopia, by the way, was not a dream or myth, but was a reality. But then it was shattered by the second great incursion of evil into God's creation, which he had deemed as good. God in love had spoken to our great, great times, whatever grandparents, when he said this in Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of it, you will surely die. The story continues, later on the tempter, Satan, in the form of a snake, comes. In all of his fallenness, he begins to spew out of that wicked lexicon he was building, the first passive-aggressive words in history. Did God really say? The question moves the hearer to think from God as as spiteful, mean, self-protective, obsessive. He questions God from beneficent provider to becoming cruel oppressor. This is the first conversation, by the way, in history... That's about God and not to him anymore. Genesis 3.2 reads like this. The woman said back to the serpent, We may eat from any tree in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. But see, that's not what God had said, right? She exaggerates by addition. You must not touch or eat. She puts words in God's mouth, and these so-called innocent embellishments now pave the way for the second great act of temptation. The snake, as I've preached before, stops, looks into her dark brown eyes as looking into her soul itself to see if she at that moment is buying it. Is she slowly being dragged away from her maker? Then suddenly, he sees it. The change has begun. 
It was the snake then that put the best Broadway show in history at that moment on earth. He bursts out in surprise and anger, supposed righteous anger, and cries out, You surely won't die, he said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, and you'll know good and evil. This, of course, is an outright lie. The charge that you will not die, of course, is that God is a liar. Here the seeds of temptation, that is, anxiety and fear, are now planted. And if they are allowed to grow, they will then lead to mistrust and then denial of faith and then to death. For God knows, the snake said, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You're going to be like God, he says. I know the mind of God, he hisses. Disobedience always brings blessing. Breaking God's law is the best thing you can do. It will bring the most positive result. The mixture of misquotation, denial, and slander, of course, is meant to seduce. You will be more than you've ever thought you could be. But see, Satan is living proof that that cannot happen. He himself is the incarnation of fallenness. The temptation that he's given, first to Eve and then to Adam, we now call deification. The attempt to be something that we were never supposed to be. One wrote it this way. Whenever one makes his or her will more crucial, and God's revealed will irrelevant, whenever autonomy displaces submission and obedience in a person, that finite individual attempts to rise above the limitations of their creator and thus try to be something they never could or should be. Well, we know the lie is taken. Paradise is lost and continues to decay to this day. And then thousands of years later, Paul recounts this painful past, our current place, and even a bright future because Genesis 3 was not the end. But today in Romans 5, 12, he begins where we began today, the ruin of all of us. In just 26 words, Paul outlines the above and so much more. Romans 5, 12 is one of these verses that we're going to spend some time in. Hear the word of God this morning. Therefore, Paul says, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all, he writes, sinned. Sin entered our total reality through one man. All of us have been born into sin because of Adam. And don't miss this. It does not say that sin originated with Adam. It was introduced into creation by Adam's sin. Sin originated with Satan, who has been sinning since the beginning. But we can't just stop there. Paul has carefully and with painstaking care chosen each word in this verse. Notice this morning, he does not say sins. He says sin, singular. He's not talking about all the things we do wrong. He's talking about our DNA, our nature. He is saying that we are all born bent towards sin and bent away from God. It's what theologians call original sin. David summarized it best in Psalm 51.1. It is one of the most offensive verses to our modern notion of being born right. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What scriptures claims is that when the egg hit the sperm and the sperm hit the egg and that soul was created, at that moment, original sin is present. When Hannah or Emma came out of Joanna, though they looked so innocent, scripture says they weren't. All of this, Paul says, leads to something that we all know so well in this place. Death. Think about it. God did not create Adam as a mortal being, but an immortal being. But when sin got involved, all things got marred, to say the least. To say the least. Death happens, by the way, in three ways. 
First, it's separation. Separation from God. It's relational death. Second is physical death, which leads to separation from other human beings and even yourself. And the third is the worst form. It's eternal death. It's when you are separated from God forever. Sin's entrance as a primeval event produced death, which in the end leaves us with the pain of affliction and the pain of loss. Truly, death is supreme unhappiness. Truly, it is the worst of all evils. As one wrote, the unbeliever especially has reason to fear all three deaths. Spiritual death prevents earthly happiness. Physical death brings an, opportunity, an end to the opportunity for salvation. And eternal death will bring everlasting punishment. Well, Paul continues by saying these difficult words. And in this way, he says, death came to all people. And so because and since Adam, all human beings have faced and experienced death. But then, right here, at this moment, Paul says something so profound, so ground-shaking, so offensive, we must stop and understand what's being said and pay attention. Because Paul ends verse 12 with these words. Because all sinned. Many of you are going, well, John, what's the big deal? I mean, I read that and I get that. I, I mean, I, I, sin, I sin all the time. But that's actually not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying we have all sinned as a complete action in the past tense. That's how it's read in Greek. Paul is saying, ready everyone? All of us have sinned as a complete action in one point of history, no exceptions. So you're going, John, I'm not, I'm not catching it. What are you trying to work out here? This is what Paul is teaching. Paul is teaching that every one of us sitting in this room or watching or listening online, John Thompson sinned when Adam sinned. We were there by proxy. Adam represented all of us before God. R.C. Sproul helped me years ago in his little book called Chosen by God to work this out. He said, this view teaches that Adam acted as the representative of the entire human race at that moment with the test that God set before Adam, which of course is needed because we're made in God's image, so choice must be there. When he tested Adam and Eve, he was actually testing all of us. Adam's name, by the way, means humanity or mankind. Adam was the first human being created. He stands at the head of the human race. He was placed in the garden, not just to act for himself, but for all of us. Just as the federal government has a chief spokesperson who is the head of a nation, so Adam is the federal head of all of us. The chief idea is that when Adam sinned, he sinned for all of us, and we all sinned for him. His fall is our fall. Our fall is his fall. And when God punished Adam by taking away original righteousness, we also, at that moment, were punished the same. Augustine used to say it this way. It's an old school way of saying it. But he said, in the loins of Adam, we were all present at the fall. Now, most of us sitting here, if we're understanding what Paul is teaching, we bristle at this. Our modern tendency is one word, me. Rugged individualism. Our individualism, one said, makes many reject with little thought the idea that we could possibly share in Adam's sin. We've been taught that it's by my choices that I will determine what I do and who I become and where I will go and how successful I, I, I will be. Now that may be true in business or in life, but not when it comes to sin, not when it comes to separation, and not when it comes to salvation. Think about this this way. Three things happened when Adam sinned. The first one, we were given a terrible example which all of us in this room have imitated. 
But we can't just stop there because Scripture won't allow us to, though even as Christians, we may want to. It's not just about imitation. It's about infection as well. What we talked about, original sin. As Augustine said so well so long ago, Adam's condition before the fall made it possible not to sin. But after the fall, Adam and all of us with him fell into the condition, not making it possible for us not to sin. When Adam fell and we fell in Adam, we now don't have a choice but to rebel against God. That's what it is. But Paul goes further. Not just a bad example. Not just an imitation issue. Not just an infection issue. He says there's an inclusion thing happening here. When Adam fell, we all fell with him at that moment. Now this is so important if you're a Christian. It's central to all we believe As one said, basic to the Christian worldview is a humanity that is inherently bent away from God with all the tragedy that, of course, comes from that sinful condition. Indeed, listen closely. Christianity offers, at this point, a succinct and convincing explanation for the human misery and hatred we have seen in our world and we see in our world right now. Original sin may not make sense to people. They may find it irrational, unjust, or not even fair. But what better explanation for the extent and the perseverance in sin, let alone, here's one, crimes against humanity. When will we just come to realize that the genocides we have seen in Africa or in Yugoslavia or in Nazi Germany is not abnormal, but in reality is just another manifestation of the kind of hatred that has marred human beings since Adam? Pascal put it so well in the Middle Ages. Original sin, he wrote, is foolishness to men, but it's admitted as such. You must not then reproach me for the want of reason in this doctrine, since I admit it's without reason. Listen, but this foolishness, he wrote, is wiser than all the wisdom of men. For without this, what can we really say man is? One last needed thought. We all had free choice in the garden. We walked with God and we knew God in Adam. But when Adam and we broke this, hear this closely this morning, we lost free choice when it comes to relationship with God. We had it, we lost it, and that's why being good or being religious will never, ever compensate. That is why Paul is about to talk to us about God calling us back. Spiritually, it says in Scripture, we are not just sick or estranged. We are dead and alienated, and it takes heaven itself to bring us back to life. Was that enough? Was that a sermon? Can I just end now? Huh. Paul just gives this huge bomb right into our modern notions and says it's all wrong. And then what Paul does is he begins to unfold his thoughts, but he he sort of scrambles all over the place. So just we'll try to follow him. Verse 13, then he says, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, what was given to Moses, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there's no law. Paul's simply saying, look, the law has been there, but even before the law, sin and death was there. Verse 14, he says, nevertheless... Death reigned from the time of Adam even to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who is the pattern of the one to come. Notice that he says that Adam is the pattern of the one to come. This is also really big for us this morning. Paul is saying and teaching us, Adam is not a myth. 
He is a real historical figure, and it must be this way. For if sin comes through a real person, so salvation must come through another real person found within history, Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man. If one is a myth, then the other also is some form of myth, which in the end just kills the Bible. The Bible is full of story but has no grounding or power. And that's Paul's point. From one earth-shattering event in Eden to the grander event at the cross, they are both actually anchored in two people, two Adams. Yet it is the second person, Jesus, who is the great second Adam, that will give us our rescue. Verse 15 says, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? This is Paul actually putting Adam and Jesus side by side. And by the way, he's comparing them. Now, they're similar in two very important ways. First, Adam and Jesus both were tempted when they were perfect. Have you thought about that? Second of all, they both represent the whole human race. Adam represents the human race. Physically, Jesus, as sort of the divine representative, comes and says, you have a way back if you'd like it. But the difference, of course, is Adam failed to obey and Jesus did obey. In Adam, we got judgment, condemnation, our just asserts. In in Jesus, we got justification, reconciliation, atonement. You could summarize all of what Jesus has done in one word, mercy. And that's what Paul says in an amazing way in that verse. The grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflows to many. The work of Jesus brings life again and again and again to millions upon millions when they become ready, born again. It's not a political term. It's a term that Jesus used, meaning you need to be spiritually reborn because you have died. Paul keeps going in verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of Adam's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Adam's one sin, he says, brought death in all forms on us and in us and through us. But Jesus' death brought forgiveness. Now think about this. For hundreds, thousands, millions, billions, Uh, trillions of sins and transgressions, plural. Jesus' death and resurrection overcomes original sin, all the acts of sin that we've ever done, and all three forms of death, and crushes the snake in the garden. Amen? That's what Paul is saying. Well, after all of that amazing stuff, we come to verse 17. And it's like Paul went, oh, I forgot to finish my thoughts from verse 12. And so writes this, For if by the trespass of one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Jesus, Paul says, gives us far more than we lost in Adam, even more than Adam had. The blessings are greater in Jesus. But notice what Paul says. Sin entered the world and all were condemned. And we will continue to live in sin and in trespass unless we receive God's gift found in Jesus Christ only. Alan's new song that he wrote is so appropriate to this. It will be given to the many, not to the all. And it's important we see this so we don't misinterpret the next verses. He keeps writing these words in verse 18. Consequently, 
Just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, also the one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. In other words, it's available. For just as through disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So in Adam, we had our, basically our lives sealed. The fate was sealed of all of us. And yet Jesus comes and he provides a way back from condemnation and alienation and death to right standing and life. Well, as Paul is giving that community in Rome and us today such power, such hope, such identity, such worldview, such assurance, then he would begin to hear some of his old family and friends, the religious Jewish community today start crying out, Paul, I mean, you've done this huge broad stroke of history and you've left out Israel completely. I mean, don't we matter? What about the Old Testament? And like, come on. And Paul will turn around and say, I have addressed that, but let me address it again. And then he says this and he turns it on its head. Verse 20, the law was brought in so trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increases all the more. The law was never truly given to make us do right. It's actually in the law where we begin to see how depraved and disconnected we truly are. And at that moment, we actually get closer and closer to Jesus because the more broken we become, the more we understand our separation, the greater a need for a Savior, thus Jesus. I found a story that illustrates this idea of grace increasing all the more in a guy named Mel Trotter. I'd never heard of him before. He had a huge influence for Jesus in Chicago in the late 18, early 1900s. Actually, he had a huge influence across America at that moment. Hear his story because it's actually quite sick. As an alcoholic, he had fallen so low that on the evening he finally stumbled into the Pacific Garden Mission and met Jesus. He was under the influence of alcohol he had purchased with the shoes he had taken from his own little girl's feet as she was laying in her coffin getting ready to be buried. He was so addicted, so depraved, he actually went to his daughter who had died, took off her little shoes and bought alcohol with them. And then he stumbles into this Christian mission and at that moment he meets Jesus. The author says, so wondrous was the effect of God's abounding grace on this life. Eight years later to the day, he was an ordained Presbyterian minister, became an outstanding evangelist, and founded 67 rescue missions that he had been saved in from coast to coast. And what would he say? He would say this, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Hear this this morning. There is always more grace. There is nothing larger. There is no sin too dark. There is no sin too wicked, too bad. Some of you never talk to God about what you really think or you've done because you use the word, it's just too sick. There is nothing too sick for my Savior. There is nothing too shaming, too grand for Jesus. It is finished, he declared on the cross. No matter how your sin is in quantity, quality, or depth, no matter how wicked it is, God's grace superabounds over your sin. That is the hope of our movement. And that's what Paul says here. That's why Paul ends this section with these words. And they're so appropriate. That is, or so that, just as sin reigned in death, 
so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Let me speak to us as a community today, as I do every week for you that are not followers of the second Adam. You may have the title Christian or not. You may be atheist, agnostic, part of another movement. I don't know. What a day for you to come and think, to struggle, to be confronted by your own sin, but also by God's love. As I was reading this week, I read another pastor that wrote this below, and it was so powerful and so beautiful and so poignant. I wanted you as a person who have not met Jesus to hear this clearly. He wrote this and said this to people just like you. As you read these words, he wrote, a great cosmic battle is now raging within you. As we have learned, the battle, by the way, is not between good and evil. See, evil has already claimed you. No, the forces vying for you are something different. It's guilt and it's grace. Yes, you have sinned, so guilt is an appropriate response. Whether you feel it or not, and like most of us, you've coped with guilt and wrongdoing, but a number of means. You've denied it. You've minimized it. It's not that bad. You've distracted yourself with sex, money, power, things I don't know. You've blame-shifted, or you've even used religion, trying to prove yourself to God. But unfortunately, this man writes, these means will never cover the guilt any better than Adam's fig leaf covered his disobedience. I like that. Hmm. God's answer to Adam's sin could have been swift, by the way, and severe. He could have spoken the universe out of existence as easily as he created it, and he would have been no less holy, by the way. In fact, many philosophers throughout the centuries question how a good, all-powerful God could ever tolerate presence of evil in our world. The answer, again, surprisingly, is grace. Undeserved favor, inexplicable mercy. Rather than execute justice and reduce us and creation to a cinder, the Lord, moved by love, confronted Adam and us with our sin. Many English translations, he writes, depicts the coming of God back into the garden after Adam has sinned as sort of an evening stroll accompanied by a gentle sundown breeze. But the more accurate translation in Hebrew suggests the wrath of God blew into the garden like a violent windstorm. And his first question to Adam, where are you, is not a real question. It is rhetorical. It is a bold invitation, ready, to come out of hiding. At the right time later in history, God confronted us with our sin by giving us the law. While the law is dangerous and deadly because it convicts and condemns those who sin, it also is God's means of grace. Through the law, his wrath blows into our garden and boldly urges all of us to come out of hiding. We have the right to fear him, and we should. His wrath is real, but we would be foolish to distrust his grace. After all, if his chief desire, listen to this, was to execute the penalty for sin, he would have already done it. So you have a choice this morning. Guilt or grace. And you may sit in either. You can remain in hiding the rest of your life and cling to guilt and suffer the inevitable judgment for your sin, eternal agonizing separation from God. Or you can stop hiding, stand before him, acknowledge your sin, and admit you are helpless to please him on your own and receive his free free gift of grace. He says God sent his son Jesus to live the guiltless life we could not live, to die the atoning death we deserve, to rise again and claim new life on our behalf, and to usher those who believe in him into a completely new kind of existence. His gift is free. It's extended by grace, and it's received through simple trust called faith. So the choice God gives you this morning, whether you're here 
watching or listening is this. Guilt or grace? God comes to you and says, it's time to leave your hiding. Many of us have understood that because of God's help in this place. We've come out of hiding and we've embraced grace. The question we always ask here is, well, what would the living Jesus try to say to us as a community at this moment in in November and December of 2010? I'd like to share two thoughts with you, and I'd ask you, please, for your attention this morning. For us who are believers, there are two huge things to learn today. Many of us in our rapid, instant culture, if we're honest, we're saying, John, appreciate the attempt, but the stuff's a little boring, long, confusing, and I don't think it's going to help me on Monday. But I want to remind you as one of your pastors that God put this in the Bible for a reason. He's not saying that everyone has to be a biblical scholar or a theologian, but he is saying to us as a community that worship also is about thinking correctly. Love the Lord God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Love the Lord God with your mind. For where our heart and our head is, that's where we will act from towards others, ourselves, and God. We must work hard as Christians to understand. We must worship not only with our time, which some of us struggle with, and with our money, which more of us struggle with, and even musically. We need to actually worship with our minds. We, bit by bit, must build our worldview through the Bible. We actually need to submit underneath the Scriptures. When we don't agree with what it says, we don't get to be God. We come underneath His Word. Understand that reason is important. Experience is important. Church tradition is even important and helpful and needed. But they are all just moons compared to the Son of God's Word. Right thinking about God and His work leads us away from false teaching, moves us away from inventing a God and a universe we're comfortable with, which always in the end we know is idolatry. It moves us to pray different, to love different, to speak different, to trust God more, to see the world from heaven's view, not ours. So my challenge to you today is this. Struggle, pray, read, wrestle it out. For the long, honest process of wrestling with passages like this, you will become a Jesus follower that actually runs the race and lasts. You will be able to speak with grace and truth. And, and this is a big and, you will not end up going down the path of living a life that looks like Jesus never showed up in you in the first place. Or worse, a life that actually reflects more of a very religious, disconnected Pharisee who spends your life with hands crossed, always judging, always focusing on the minor issues, always missing the fresh work of God, and thus missing what Jesus is trying to do in you and your family in this very lost world. Scripture is given to us so we can not only know and we can not only hear, but we can worship with our mind. Read the passage, because when you struggle with passages like this, you will be formed into what God has elected you to be. Our world is desperate to see Christians that not only are full of great deeds, but also have a faith that has been thought through, and a faith that is not afraid to interact with a difficult world. To some of you, God comes to you this morning and says, I'm coming into your garden at this moment to challenge you with guilt and grace. To all of us, he comes to us and says, we need to wrestle through the dark and difficult things in Scripture and submit our worldviews under them. But let me give you one last parting thought. As we've reflected today as a family on the vastness and the seriousness of our sin in Adam, 
and the greatness of our rescue through the second Adam. We again and again, I hope, have been given hope as we've read through Romans. We are given hope for this life and the life to come. Again, if you're a Christian here this morning, ground how you view yourself in God's Word and nowhere else. All that Paul has spoken on a high level, spanning all of history, is actually given to you. To you personally, too. God's gift that keeps on giving is yours. You are a recipient of God's grace. It overflows more and more. You are justified. You have been given an abundant provision of grace. You have been given a gift called righteousness. Eternal life has been given to you. Jesus' obedience on your behalf has put you in right standing. Where sin has grown more and more and more, God's grace increases all the more for you. Sin has actually been forgiven over and in you. Death in all three forms has been overcome. And this is not wishful thinking. Jesus Christ our Lord has done this for us and in this. Eternal life will be ours. And before we just rush always into the future, just remember this is given to us so we can live a Christian life today. I found these words below and it's where I'll end. Penned and spoken through tears centuries ago by a great Christian man Many of us will meet one day. His name is Ambrose. He was one of the great church fathers in his day. And he understood the power, listen to this, of Romans chapter 5. He preached out of Romans chapter 5 at a funeral for his brother that died very unexpectedly and left him heartbroken. Ambrose said these words, and I want you to hear them. And remember, at a funeral. In Adam, he declared, through tears, I fell. In Adam, he declared, I was cast out of paradise. In Adam, I died. How shall God call me back then except to find me in Adam? For just as in Adam I am guilty of sin and owe a debt of death, so in Christ, he said over his brother's body, I am justified. Hope that is more powerful than death is found here. Hope that keeps us and sustains us. Hope that does not invite escapism, but perseverance is found here. We're all born in and under one Adam. But now if you're a Christian, we live in and under a better Adam that gives us back what was lost in Eden in part and fully in the time to come. And so I end with these words. Is not this second Adam, hear this, Jesus, worthy of our time? Is this Jesus not worthy of our money? Is Jesus not worthy, honestly, of our love? Is he not worthy to trust with our lives, our bank accounts, our families, our houses, our RSPs? Is Jesus not worthy of everything we own? Is Jesus not worthy of worship? As we sing all the time, is he not beautiful, worthy, high and lifted up? We sing a song all the time here, oh, how he loves us, and it's true. Do we not have an amazing brother, a master, a king, a lord that so many others wish for but never want to embrace because it costs too much? So my challenge to you as we end is this. How can we not give our all to Jesus who justifies and atones and saves us from death and Satan and comes and says our sin is sick and gross, but I have overcome it? Is not our Savior King an amazing, amazing God? He is. So let's pray to him today and ask that this passage forms how we view the world and ourselves. And so we pray to you, Lord Jesus, Same Jesus, second Adam, who dealt with everything we did, we did in the garden. And we admit as a community a few things. Number one, number one, we admit 
we were there too and we raised our fist against you too. And thank you that you would come and call us back. Thank you for hope, identity, life, eternal life, life in the now. Thank you for justifying us, making us righteous. Thank you that your work covers all the trespasses. I pray in the name of Jesus too for many people that struggle continually with how they view themselves in the world that they would be grounded here. Holy Spirit, I ask that. But I also take a moment too for you who are seekers. And if you have never embraced the true God of heaven and earth through Jesus, really, and God has blown into your garden and called you out of hiding, then in humility pray this prayer. Jesus, second Adam, I don't want guilt. I want grace. I'm done fighting. I'm done running. I'm done trusting in myself or being good. It's just you. Come now, I pray, and make me your child. I turn from my sin and embrace you. I do this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that, make sure to tell a pastor or a friend because you've started a great journey. But for all of us, I just give you this hope. The second Adam is real. He's doing his work in our community. He will continue to do it. And he's worthy of our worship. So let's stand and sing to him because he is present here among us. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.crotherscreek.ca.